Thank Thanks, you. guys. Okay, if you have your Bible, would you please open with me this morning to the book of 1 Samuel? And this morning we are going to be in chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, would you just stick your hand up and we'll make sure that one of our elders, uh, one of our ushers gives you a, a Bible so you can follow along with us. Uh, so once again, in 1 Samuel chapter 15 this morning, and as we open God's word, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through it. Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself in the words of these pages, and we ask, Lord, that this morning, as we look upon these words, Lord, that we would see you. Lord, also let these words be to us a mirror that help us to see ourselves for how you really uh, want us to see ourselves, Lord. Help us to see ourselves in your eyes, Lord. Help us to see the, the, maybe the things that we've been blind to about ourselves as we study this, Lord, because we want to be people who have a heart for you. And we ask this morning, Lord, that as we read your word, as we study it, as we take it in, Lord, that you would transform us from the inside out. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. A recent study showed that uh, one in every three people who has a tattoo, suffers from a condition which has been given a name. It's called tattoo regret. So one out of every three people who has a tattoo suffers from tattoo regret. Maybe there are even some of you here today who suffer from that condition. Uh, I read a survey online also about regret, and they were asking older people what their greatest regrets were looking back on their lives. And the most common regrets, they put them in categories, right? Uh, most frequent, the most frequent regrets that people reported having later in life were in the following areas in the following order, career, education, and parenting. I wonder about you, are there any areas of your life where you just live with a sense of regret? I think we all have regrets, and here's a definition from the dictionary of what regret is. Regret is a sense of loss or disappointment over a missed opportunity. A sense of loss or disappointment over a missed opportunity. Interestingly, here in our text today in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we are going to read two times, twice, that God regretted something. God regretted something. That's very interesting, right? It's very intriguing. How could it be that God could regret something? And, and uh, as we study here in 1 Samuel 15 today, we're going to be looking at what that means and what that situation was that God found so regrettable. We're going to be talking about what it means and how it could be that God regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. That's the title of today's message, by the way, A Regretful Situation. On Sunday mornings, we've been traveling through the book of 1 Samuel. We're going through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse because we want to get out everything that's in this message that God wants to speak to us through this book. As we've been studying the life of Saul, who's the first king of Israel, that's been the last several weeks now, uh, what we have seen is that he is a man who started well. He started out great, but as we've talked about, in the end, it doesn't matter how you start. What matters is how you finish. Saul was a natural-born leader. He really had all the potential in the world to be a great man of God, to be a great leader in Israel. He was a natural-born leader. He's like tall and handsome, the kind of person that people naturally follow. On top of all that, he was also wise, and he was humble, which is a great combination. Not only that, but Saul was called by God, and Saul was anointed with the Spirit of God. There was even a point in Saul's life when Saul turned to God and it says there that God gave him a new heart and Saul became a different man, a changed man. That's what we call getting saved Old Testament style, right? Now, the, you know, 
he had everything going for him. He started out so great. But somewhere along the line, it all went south. And that's where we're at today. It's all gone south now. Even though he started out so well. You know, it didn't happen at once. It didn't happen in a moment. But over time, little by little, Saul's heart turned away from God. Saul stopped being that humble man that he had once been. And his heart became filled with pride. And as his heart became filled with pride, he became increasingly a very insecure person. And in his insecurity and in his pride, Saul began to do foolish things for very wrong motivations. Uh, That's what we've been seeing over the last few chapters, that Saul, although he started out with a heart for God, remember that's the title of our series because that is the big idea of the book of 1 Samuel. Although Saul started out with a heart for God over the last few chapters, we've just seen this downward spiral in his life. It's very sad to see really as he turned away from God in his heart. Here in chapter 15, everything really comes to a head now and God is going to confront Saul about where his heart is at. As we look at the story this morning, uh, I believe that what God wants us to consider is where our own hearts are at, right? Because the Word of God is a mirror. It's a mirror uh, that as we look in it, we should also, we should not just be seeing Saul and his heart, but we should see in him and in his heart our own heart, right? Let God speak to us through this, this story about the areas in our hearts where we've drifted away, where we've turned away, where we need to get right with the Lord, Let's start off in our story, chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the Lord, of the words of the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Kill both man, woman, infant, and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So this was a message from the spiritual leader of Israel, that's the prophet Samuel, to the political and military leader of Israel, that's King Saul, and he is giving him a word from the Lord. And the message was very clear. God told them to go and exact judgment or punishment upon Amalek for what they did to Israel. They were going to attack the Amalekites, and utterly destroy them. That was the commandment they were given. This was to be a judgment of God against the Amalekites, their complete destruction, and it was to be carried out by the army of Israel. Now the question is, why did God want to judge the Amalekites? Well, centuries before this, way back in the book of Exodus, if you, uh, if you remember right when they were coming out of Egypt, right? The Red Sea parted, they're coming out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 17, we read the story of how the, as the Israelites are coming in this big procession out of Egypt, the Amalekites ambushed them and attacked them. But see, it wasn't just that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites that was the problem. It was how they did it. They did it in a particularly despicable way. Um, In Exodus 17, like I said, you can read that story. If you're familiar with the story of Aaron and Hur, remember they held up Moses' hands and as Moses prayed for the people, uh, God gave them victory. That's the story. But in Deuteronomy chapter 25, we read this interesting detail which really gives us some insight into what the problem is here. It says this, Moses tells the people, Deuteronomy chapter 25, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt 
how he met you on the way, and here's the key, he attacked your rear ranks and all the stragglers at your rear who were, t- who were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven." God was particularly angered at the Amalekites uh, because they had committed a terrible sin against the people of Israel. What the Amalekites had done is they had ambushed the people, and what we read there is that they had picked off the people in the back, the stragglers. What that means is the weakest, the most vulnerable of all the people. They attacked the rear ranks when you were tired and weary. That's what it said. So imagine this. Here's the situation. There's this great procession of Israelites coming out of Egypt. They're walking. They've been walking for days now. At the end of this procession, right, we have the stragglers. Now, who are the stragglers generally, right? We're talking the weak, the elderly, the infirmed, right, the handicapped, the sick. We're talking about children who are tired from walking all day in the hot sun. And here come the Amalekites, and without any provocation, they sneak up for no reason except for greed and and violence, and they come and kill and rob the weakest and the most vulnerable of the people of Israel, right? It wasn't a fair fight. It wasn't one army facing off against another army. It was some strong men coming and picking off the weakest, the infirmed. It was a despicable thing which they had done. You know, one of the great themes of the Bible, and especially of the Old Testament, is that God hates it when the strong take cruel advantage of the weak. God hates it when the strong take cruel advantage of the weak. And that, thing, that, that principle still applies today. Now, nowadays, it isn't very common that, you know, you're out for a walk with your family at the park, and then some Amalekites come out of nowhere and just pick off the weak ones, right? Uh, it doesn't happen all that often. But this, this still does happen, that the strong take cruel advantage of the weak. Many times it happens in the workplace, right? Where people manipulate or they, they force things that shouldn't be done. Sometimes it happens with money, right? That people who have money take advantage of people who don't have money because they know what a vulnerable and desperate situation they're in. It happens with abuse, right? Physically and emotionally. Uh, people who are in a position of strength take advantage of someone who's in a position of weakness. And God promised that he would bring judgment upon the Amalekites for the vicious way that they preyed upon the weak when they were in a position of strength. So now in fulfillment of that promise made hundreds of years before this, now that they are settled into the land and they have victory over their enemies, at least for the moment, God is calling Saul and the army of Israel to go and bring judgment upon the Amalekites. For Saul, really, why does it come at this time? I I believe, really, uh, you know, Saul has been turning away from God. He's been drifting away from God. And so now God is giving him this task to do as a test of obedience. To say, look, the message is clear. It couldn't be misunderstood. It couldn't be any more clear. Here's the message. Everything. Complete destruction. Right? No caveats. No nothing. Just everything. Complete destruction. It's very simple. Let's read what happens in verse 4. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. The Kenites were the descendants of uh, Jethro, 
Jethro was the father-in-law of Moses, if you remember back to the uh, book of Exodus. And they, the Kenites lived in the same general area as the Amalekites. So Saul goes and tells the Kenites, look, this isn't about you, this isn't your fight, so get out of here before you can, before you get caught up in something that really has nothing to do with you. But if you look at this so far, Saul's doing everything right, right? He hears the command, he gets the army together, they go and lay in wait, they're, they're doing what God told him to do. Verse 7, Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. All right, so this is good, right? Saul is doing everything which the Lord told him to do. But then we come to verse 8, and Saul also took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. All right, do you you see what's happening here? God has spoke very plainly to Saul. Wipe out everything, right? It couldn't be misunderstood. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed in the judgment of God, that was what was to happen to the Amalekites. But Saul didn't do it. He didn't do what God had said. First of all, Saul spared King Agag. Now, we don't know exactly why. Maybe it was out of, you know, mutual respect. You're a king, I'm a king, I'll let you live. Maybe it was because he wanted to take Agag back as some kind of trophy, right, to show how he had defeated these people and made their king his servant. That's possible. We don't know why exactly, but Saul spared King Agag. Notice this, too. When Saul didn't obey the commandment of the Lord, then his army also didn't obey the commandment of the Lord. They were following their leader. I think that's an important thing for us parents to take note of. Uh, When Saul disobeyed God, then the army followed suit. They followed Saul in this, and they kept for themselves all that was good. That's what we read. And they destroyed only the worthless things. It was a normal uh, operating practice in war in ancient times that armies were freely permitted to plunder their conquered foes. In fact, this was one of the main ways that they were compensated, right, for going into war. This was one of the biggest incentives for men to join the army and go to war because if you won, then you were going to get to take home a bunch of stuff, right? You're going to get to take home livestock and probably money and possessions. So this is a major incentive for going into war was that you get to plunder. So again, this kind of plundering was just a normal operating procedure in the ancient world but here God told them no not this time I don't want you to plunder anything nothing you can't take anything home you know why here's why because God did not want anyone any individual to benefit personally from his judgment upon the Amalekites Uh, no one should be leaving this battle happy right God judged the Amalekites. No one should be happy about that. No one should be leaving uh, feeling that this was a good thing that they benefited from. Because to do so, to leave this judgment in a happy attitude, would be to totally misrepresent the heart of God. You know, God is a righteous judge. He will and he must judge sin, but it doesn't bring him joy in his heart to bring judgment upon people. God brings his judgment reluctantly, without pleasure and delight, right? Desiring instead that all people would repent and be saved. In the book of Ezekiel, God states this fact very clearly. In in chapter 18, he says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that they should turn from their ways and live? 
Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Right? This is the heart of God. God doesn't want us to rejoice in someone else's downfall. He doesn't want us to rejoice in someone else's judgment. It should be a somber thing where we realize, if not for the mercy of God, there go I as well. I would be in that same place if not for the blood of Jesus. I deserve the same. God had told the Israelites to destroy everything, not to keep a single thing, but instead we read that they kept the best and they destroyed the rest. Now you can imagine them after the battle, right? They're looking at all this stuff and they're thinking, hey, this is some perfectly good stuff, right? I mean, check out this sheep. It's a perfectly good sheep. It would be a real shame to see all this go to waste, right? But, but you know all the broken and worthless stuff, like there's a broken chair, and you know, we can throw that away. We'll be happy to destroy that. That's kind of trash anyway, right? It, they have no problem obeying God when it comes to the worthless things. And here's the point. It's easy to obey God when it's convenient or when it doesn't cost you anything, Oftentimes the way it works is this. We have our uh, interests and we have God's interests. And where they intersect, right, where they overlap, well, of course there we're happy to obey God because that's easy, right? That's God's interest matches our interest. No problem, right? Many of us are prepared to obey God's commandments up to a point because what happens when your interests and God's interests don't line up, right? When God wants you to do something and you're like, I'm not really sure if I want to do that, right? I'm not really sure if that's in my cards, right? Uh, many of us are prepared to obey God's commands up to a point, right? Up to the point where it costs us something, up to the point where we'd rather not or where, where we really think that another option seems like a better way in our opinion. But we need to obey God all the time. That's really what's going on here in this section. These guys might have said to us or to someone else they might have said look God gave us like three things to do and we did two of them don't we get credit for doing two out of three I mean that's more than half that's pretty good right well the answer is no no when it comes to the commandments of God partial obedience is complete disobedience you know that when it comes to God's commandments partial obedience is complete disobedience so Saul and his men they obeyed God only as far as it suited them Right? They, they followed their own inclinations. And where their agenda matched up with God's agenda, it was easy to do God's things. But they were not following the commandment of God, just going after their own inclinations. And I think this is an interesting concept too. They kept the best and they devoted to God the rest. Right? They kept the best and they gave God the rest. Now that's not how it should work, right? But isn't that how many people uh, do it? Many of us even, that's how we are with our time and our resources. We keep the best and we give God the rest, right? The leftovers. If we have any, uh, it's easy to devote those to God. But friends, let me tell you, God deserves our best. He doesn't deserve our leftovers. He doesn't deserve the rest. He deserves our best. Carry on in verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. Here we see the heart of God, right? We see that God is grieved over the fact that Saul has turned away from him. That Saul is, his heart is so far now. He's disobeying God so greatly, right? This, this man who started out 
with so much potential, with everything going for him, this man who started out humble and submissive to God, now he is boldly going his own way in disobedience to God. And that grieves the heart of God. Here we read this phrase again, which is so intriguing, right? I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, perhaps even a bit confusing, right? It says that God greatly regretted that he set up Saul as king. We're going to read that same phrase in the very last verse of this chapter again. Now, what does that mean? How can that even be that God would regret something that he did, right? I mean, what's interesting too is this isn't the only time in the Bible that it says this. There's Several times, probably the the most uh, clear one is in Genesis chapter 6 in the story of the flood, right? It says that God looked upon the wickedness of the people, the terrible sins that they were committing against each other, the the sins they were committing against God, right? The terrible pain that they were uh, inflicting on each other. God looked upon all of it and it says that God regretted that he had created man upon the earth. Now that begs the question, right? I mean, how can it be that God, right? God, who knows everything, right? Who is perfect, who, uh, who could have done things. I mean, he could have done things differently, right? He, he knows the future, right? How could it be that God would regret something that he did? I mean, does that mean that God made a mistake, right? That God's just kind of making it up as he goes along and sometimes he does things that he later looks back on and says, Oh, man, that was the wrong thing to do. Wow, wish I would have known that beforehand. Wish I would have been able to see the future and, and know that, uh, that it was going to turn out this way because then I would have done things differently. Well, obviously, that's the way that we often use the word regret, uh, but that's not the, the way, the sense in which it's used here in regard to God. When we read that God regretted something, it doesn't mean that he wished he had done it differently, what it's trying to communicate to us is this. It's trying to use human terms that we can understand, that we can relate to, because all of us can relate to the feeling of regret. And it's trying to use terms that we can relate to and understand and say this, that God felt deep, deep sadness over a regrettable situation. Now, remember that definition of regret I gave you earlier? I think it's good to refer back to that. Remember that? I said regret is a sense of loss or disappointment over a missed opportunity. Well, isn't that exactly what God is feeling here? A sense of loss, a sense of disappointment, a missed opportunity. I mean, Saul, Saul, you you had so much potential, Saul. You started off so great. You had the right heart. But now you've just so boldly turned away from me. You've gone your own way. What a sense of loss. What a sense of disappointment. What a missed opportunity. You know, when we... we, I'm sorry. When we read that uh, God regretted that he made Saul king, or that God regretted that he made man upon the earth, this is what's called anthropomorphism. And so for you literature nerds like me, right, you know exactly what that means. It means when you assign a human characteristic to something which is not human. And, And that's something that the Bible does a lot, right? Because it's trying to express divine things in human language, and human language is limited, right? So God is trying to help us understand him, help us understand his heart by putting things in human terms that we can understand, that we can relate to. You see, God knew exactly what was happening here. He knew that this would happen. When, when he appointed Saul to be king, he knew exactly how it was going to turn out. He's not surprised, right? It's not like he's like a GPS and Saul took the wrong turn and now God has to, you know, uh, recalculate his plans now. 
right? God's plan hasn't changed from the beginning, but as his plan unfolded, here's the point. God was feeling. God was feeling as this plan unfolded. He's not just a wooden, unfeeling God, right? And, and this is what I would say. God is sovereign, but God is not emotionless. And that, I believe that is the key to understanding this. God is sovereign, but he is not emotionless. God doesn't just sit up in heaven like with a clipboard, you know, just checking off boxes. That happened and that happened and good, that happened. I guess everything's going according to plan, right? No, I mean, when Saul sinned, even though God knows the whole timeline, in the moment as it's unfolding, God is feeling. He knows it's going to happen, but his heart is filled with emotion in the moment even, right? And the closest word that we have that God can use to help us understand what he is feeling, what's going through his heart, is this word regret. It's been said that the tears of God are the meaning of history. I love that phrase, and I love what it means when you think about it. Now, think about it again. The tears of God are the meaning of history. Let me explain. In the Garden of Eden, right, the story of the, be- of the beginning of the Bible, right? The story of the beginning of human history. In the Garden of Eden, God creates us, right? And he knits his heart to us in love as a husband, as a father. And what is our response? What was the response that was given to God? He says, I love you. And we say, we don't love you and we don't trust you. And we want you to go away because we want to do our own thing. That is the essence of the story of Adam and Eve. And that story is repeated in all of our lives at one point or another. But think about this. Why didn't it end right there? Why didn't history end when when the people rejected God in the Garden of Eden? Why didn't God just judge them and be done with it for good? Well, I guess that didn't work out, right? Oh, well, right? I mean, he's got time, right? Because instead, you know why? You know why history exists at all? Because God chose to weep. Because God chose to feel pain rather than just to simply judge. He decided to absorb the pain that our sin, that our rebellion caused him and absorb it so that he could make a way for salvation and redemption for us. In order for us to be saved, God had to suffer the deep pain that our sin causes over and over and over and over. That is the story of history. That God absorbs our pain so that he can save us. A million times over, God could have said, enough, enough pain, enough grief in my heart, enough, and just wipe it all out like he did here with the Amalekites. But the story of history is that over and over, God has chosen to absorb pain himself so that he could make a way for us to be saved and redeemed and restored and have eternal life. And you know what? That is the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is this, that God chose to absorb pain. He chose to absorb our judgment upon himself so that we could be saved. That is what Jesus Christ did as he hung on the cross of Calvary. He absorbed our sin and our judgment in himself so that we could be saved and set free. Isn't that glorious? Do you see how much he loves you? He loves you that much. God's heart is grieved over the place where Saul's heart is at. Even though he knows the big picture, even though he knows the good that he's going to bring out of this bad situation, even though he knows everything, he still feels in the moment, right, as history unfolds. And what that means for you is that he is a God who can empathize with you in the things that you go through. Verse 11 we, we not only see that, uh, that God had pain in his heart, but we see that there was pain in the prophet's heart. 
It says that it grieved Samuel so much what was happening that he cried out to the Lord all night. You know, Samuel is a true man of God. Think about this. Think about the relationship between these two men, Samuel and Saul, right? Samuel uh, used to be the leader of the nation before Saul came around, right? And one day, the, the elders of Israel come up to Samuel and they say, Samuel, you're getting pretty old and we don't really want you to lead us anymore. Uh, ouch, right? Nobody likes to hear that. Like, that's a bummer. But Samuel, he, it says that he was saddened by that. And he goes and he prays about it. And God says, Samuel, don't take it personally. This isn't about you. This is about me. And you know what? If they want a king, I'll give them a king. So Saul comes on as the first king of Israel. And, and here's the deal. Saul replaced Samuel. So imagine this, right? That you've got a job. You like your job. You don't want to be replaced in your job. But you're, you're kind of forced out of your job right? And another guy comes in, a younger guy. He's your replacement. And he comes in and he does a terrible job, right? How does that make you feel? Well, it makes you feel pretty great, right? You're like, well, there you go. Take that, whippersnappers. You should have known, right? Young guy, he's not going to do the job as well as I can. You should have never fired me in the first place. I hope you learned your lesson. Now maybe they'll come crawling back to me, asking me to take the job back, right? But was that Samuel's attitude? Did he say, hey guys, remember this whole thing that went down? I told you it'd be better with me. You can have me back if you want. No, that wasn't his attitude at all. Rather, Samuel is grieved. You know why? Because he cares about the glory of God. He cares about the, the future of Israel. He's not just looking out for his own vain glory. So rather than being happy to see Saul fail as a leader, it says that Samuel's terribly grieved. And this shows that Samuel has God's heart. You know, you know that you are close to God's heart when the things that grieve God grieve you. And the things which bring joy to God's heart bring joy to your heart. So now Saul is going to confront Samuel, verse 12. When Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on, he's gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. So Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. What a picture this is, right? Samuel goes, and he's going to confront Saul about his disobedience. And on the way, somebody says, Hey, by the way, Saul's not at home. He's over in Carmel. And what's he doing? He's building a monument to himself, a memorial. Uh, that's kind of a weird thing to do, right? Like if you have a coffee cup that says number one boss, which you bought for yourself, that's not the same as if somebody gives that to you, right? Like you have a t-shirt that says number one dad, and you went and had that made for yourself, not the same as if somebody gives that to you, right? Uh, just, just a heads up there. So the question is this, is Saul grieved over his sin? Is he broken because he sinned against the Lord and disobeyed the commandment of God? Is he sorry? Not at all. He's pleased with himself. He thinks he is pretty awesome, right? Like he is setting up a monument to himself. Paul, uh, sorry, Saul is proud of what he's done. There isn't even like the slightest bit of shame or guilt in him, even though Saul has directly disobeyed the Lord. And this is a huge difference that we're going to see between Saul and David, who will be the next leader of Israel, a man about whom God said, this is a man after my own heart. David was not perfect. Like Saul, David also sinned. But you know what? When he sinned, he was deeply ashamed. And he was completely repentant before God. Saul, no, when he sins, he builds a monument to himself. 
Uh, that's a very different heart. You know, Saul, Saul, he started out as a humble man, but things have changed and not in a good way. And here comes Samuel to confront Saul about his sin. And, and what does Saul say when he sees him coming? He pulls out, right, all the Christian lingo, right? All that stuff that you only pull out on Sundays, right? Like, God bless you, brother. You know, this is the day that the Lord has made. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God is good all the time. Am I right? You know, and Samuel says, dude, who do you, who do you think you're fooling, right? He says, Samuel, man, I'm feeling good. You know why I'm feeling good? Because I obeyed the commandment of the Lord. Well, it's not true at all, is it? Verse 14, Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Even as Samuel is, is claiming that he has performed the commandment of the Lord, the, the very livestock which he was supposed to destroy are walking around the area. They can be seen, they can be heard, they can be smelled. Verse 15, Saul said, oh, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Man, it just gets worse every time Saul opens his mouth, right? If you're a note taker, you can feel free to write in your margin of your Bible. Lame excuse, because that's what this is, right? Oh, those animals. Oh, yeah, the animals. Well, see, Samuel, you need to understand, that's not my fault, right? That was the other guys. And you know what? Actually, it's not that bad, because I'm pretty sure they only kept them so they could sacrifice them to God, you know? That would be great, right? He's just throwing everybody else under the bus, right? Rather than owning the fact that he just simply disobeyed the commandment of God. One commentator put it this way. Saul has a bad habit that he substitutes saying for doing and making excuses for confessing his sins. Verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. You understand what that means? He's saying, he's saying enough excuses. Just be quiet, man. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And so Saul says, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and finish or fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? He says, Saul, you used to be little in your own eyes, but now you've become big in your own eyes. You used to be humble, and that was good. See, here's the thing. When you are little in your own eyes, God will inevitably be big in your eyes. But if you are big in your eyes, it's inevitable that God will become increasingly small in your eyes. That's the story of Saul. Uh, verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me on to, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Well, first of all, that wasn't even true. We're gonna see that later on, that there's quite a few Amalekites still walking around. So this isn't even true. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Again, rather than repenting of his disobedience, Saul is trying to justify it. He's trying to blame other people. Saul, don't you see what you're doing? Saul, how did you get to this place? Verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you 
from being king. Saul's here saying, okay, so maybe I didn't do everything that God asked me to do, but it was because I had a better idea. I thought maybe we could keep that stuff and we could dedicate it to the Lord and sacrifice. Well, it'll be a worship. We can have a big giant church service, right? Religious observance. We can do it all. Why, why let all that stuff go to waste? And Samuel says, Saul, you still don't get it, do you? What God wants from you is not your religious observance. He doesn't want you to do something for him. He wants your heart. Don't you get it, Saul? Remember the title we gave this series? A Heart for God. That is the central theme of this book. God wants your heart. He sees your heart and he wants your heart, right? The very core, the essence of who you are. He wants you to give it to him. You know what's interesting? I think it is easier to do something for God than it is to really give yourself completely over to God. If you've given your heart over to God, though, it will be shown in the fact that you will be an obedient person to God. You will want to obey God. You know, obedience, I think, in a way, is kind of a taboo word in our society. Even amongst Christians, they really don't like to hear this word obedience, right? They kind of reel back at it, right? But you know what? God cares very much about obedience. That's what this tells us. God cares a lot about it. You know why? Because obedience is an indicator of where your heart is at. It's an indicator of if, if you really believe that if you really trust God, if you really believe that he is good and that he really loves you, if you really believe that he is right and he knows, you know, a heart that's given over to God will be a heart that's eager to obey God. So Samuel says, Saul, you've rejected the word of the Lord and he has rejected you from being king. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Finally, Saul's getting real, right? He's finally just being real about what happened. It's kind of like with your kids, right? When it comes time for a consequence, when it finally comes down to it and they're like, okay, 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 okay. I, I, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I will never do it again ever, right? And, and that's what Saul's doing, right? He's, he finally admits what really happened. The real issue was I feared the people and I obeyed them instead of obeying God. I, I just didn't want them to think badly of me. You can imagine what really happened. They were in the battlefield and, and Saul says, okay, guys, the command is we gotta destroy everything. And the people say, oh, are you kidding, Saul? That would be stupid. It would be stupid to destroy everything. I mean, look at all this good stuff that we could just take home. Look, there's King Agag. What kind of cool trophy would he be, right? Take him back to Gilgal, parade him around. Everything would be awesome. Saul, rather than standing up to these guys and saying, no, we must obey the Lord, he says, oh yeah, okay, good idea, guys, let's do it that way. Saul feared the people more than he feared God. He cared more about what the people thought of him, that they wouldn't reject him, that they wouldn't look down on him than he did about being rejected by God. And now, even now, he just finally has the guts to admit it. Verse 25. Now the people, oh, I'm sorry, wrong chapter here. Okay, now therefore, please pardon my sin, and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He says, hey, can't we just forget about this? Can't we just go back to the way things used to be? Well, I'm sorry, okay? Doesn't that make it better? Verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel, oh, as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. We're gonna meet him next week. His name's David. Also, the strength of Israel, he will not lie or relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. 
He's saying God doesn't change his mind, right? He's not just making this up as he goes along. Verse 30, then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Samuel, you know, he's saying, Samuel, I'm sorry. Now let's just forget about this whole thing and let's go back and, you know, we'll stand in front of the elders of Israel and you can tell them everything's cool, right? Everything's good. We're just gonna continue on as we have been. But don't you see that Saul, his whole identity is caught up in the fact that he's king and he is totally afraid of losing that. And that's what we're going to see as we go on in future chapters as well. Verse 31. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. He said, all right, man, you know what I will let you do? I will let you worship God. Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless amongst women. Samuel hacked Agag into pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, uh, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Such a sad ending, right? This man, Saul, he started out with so much potential. He ends in such a regrettable way. You know, what was the situation that God found so regretful? Remember our definition of regret? A sense of loss or disappointment over a missed opportunity. The great regret of this story is that Saul started off so well. He had everything he needed, all the potential in the world. But instead of becoming a great man of God, he became a small, self-consumed person who stood for nothing. Saul had so much potential to be a great man of God, but he allowed his heart to drift so far from God that he never returned. He became great in his own eyes. And as that happened, God became small in his eyes. And his heart turned away from the Lord. He pursued his own path, his own glory, and that became his ruin. And that grieved the heart of God. God was sad about that. I got two big takeaways for you as we close. First of all, I want you to remember this. In your eyes, make sure that you are small and that God is big. Make sure that God is big in your eyes and you are small because to the degree that you become great in your own eyes, God will inevitably become small. So make sure you retain that place of humility and submission before God. And the second thing is this. God sees your heart. God sees your heart. That's one of the great messages of this chapter and of this book. God sees your heart. He sees below the surface to what's really going on inside, the real issues, the true motivations, what's really going on on the inside. And you know, for some people, that message that God sees your heart, it brings them great comfort. But for other people, that message that God sees your heart, it's absolutely terrifying, right? Because they know, you know that there's stuff in there that shouldn't be there. It's not good, right? And God's word tells us this. In Proverbs chapter four, it says, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Take care to make sure that your heart is right before God. Don't end up like Saul. Don't end up like Saul who slowly drifted away to the point where he never returned. Maybe there are some of you here today that today is the day when you need to come back to the Lord 
and give him your heart again. Maybe you've drifted away. Maybe you've turned away in some area of your life. Maybe today is the day for some of you here today when you need to return to him and give him your whole heart once again. He doesn't just want your religious observance. You know that? He wants your heart. Let's stand and pray. Lord, as we stand before you this morning, as we hear this message of how you want our heart, Lord, not just our religious observance, not just the things that we do for you, Lord, you want our whole heart, you want our whole being. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who says, you know what? I see some soul-like tendencies in my own life that I have become great and important in my own eyes and God has become little and less important. And I want to repent of that. Lord, if there's anyone here today who says, I have Saul-like tendencies, I have drifted away from the Lord, but I realize that it's time to come back before I end up like Saul, drifted away too far. Lord, this morning, would you receive us back as we say, Lord, we are yours. We give you our hearts. Everything we are, heart and soul, Lord, it's yours. Lord, would you take us, would you do with us Whatever you want, Lord, would we not give you the leftovers? Would we not just keep the best and give you the rest if there is any, Lord, but would we give you the very best? Lord, this morning again, we want to say, Jesus, you are good. Thank you for absorbing our sin and judgment on the cross. And we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.